Welcome to the Big Van Theory. Nick, welcome to the Big Van Theory, our first ever guest. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure, love the name. Good. Um, I can't take any credit for that. That was uh, Julie Shepherd, the writer at Decanter. I'd come up with about 20 <laughs> names and they were all rubbish. But um, So a big shout out to Julie. Thank you for that one. Congratulations, <laughs> Julie. <laughs> um, so uh, I, mean, I imagine most people listening uh, will know exactly who you are. But um, in 30 seconds or less, do you want to explain who you are, what you do and why you're qualified to talk on what we're going to talk about? Oh, gosh. Well, I, starting with the, um, the final, but I don't know how, how qualified I am, but hopefully by the end of it, you'll think I am. But I'm Nick Darlington. I am the co-founder of the Graft Wine Company, which is a specialist importer. We're a little importer supplying restaurants, wine bars, independent wine merchants across the UK, throughout the British Isles. And prior to that, I ran a company called Red Squirrel Wine, which merged in 2019, which feels more like one year ago now, with the Knotted Vine, who were a very similar, uh, similarly ethos and philosophy and small producer driven wine importer uh, and yeah doing very different things though to very different markets and we came together last year to create graft so here we are and it's working well we're still here yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i mean we, we, we're still here having had probably the most difficult six months thrown at any industry in my lifetime anyway so yeah touch wood uh, we'll still be here in, in for our second birthday as well as our first so yeah it's going okay well, that sort of segues actually quite well into one of the questions I was going to ask you. Um, so Red Squirrel started as e-commerce, wine events, and sort of almost private client sort of yeah. stuff. Um, then you shifted within a year or so straight to trade wholesale. How are you selling at the moment? Have you gone back direct to consumer? Are you doing e-commerce? Um, and is that a permanent fixture? It's, it's always been a permanent fixture. Okay. So you're right. Red Squirrel began as an online retailer. Uh, it's what I knew or at least it's what I knew of coming into it from my own background. I'm not of the wine trade. I didn't know how to supply restaurants, for instance. I didn't know how those supply chains worked. I didn't know how that business worked. So I came into wine as a retailer and organizing events, small-scale corporate and consumer events. That changed quite quickly in the space of about 18 months, two years to the genesis of what Red Squirrel became, which was a wholesaler, an importer, supplier. And and that was partly my own reading of the market, but also as, as people joined the business who had been in the wine trade for a while, started to steer things more in that direction. People like Rob Woodhead, who, who's still with us, Ollie North, who is, is now working out in Australia. And Around sort of 2015, therefore, Red Squirrel started going more down that route. And by the time we merged with the Knotted Vine in 2019, online retail was about 1% of our business. So it was always there. And we kept an online shop principally because we wanted an outlet for a lot of these wines, which were mostly being sold into the on-trade. And therefore, they didn't have a retail outlet in the UK and producers wanted that shop window. So that shot remained and it remained when we merged with the Knotted Vine to create Graft. It was still called Red Squirrel because Red Squirrel had, was an established name in that, that format. When lockdown came, we were quite lucky compared to maybe other people in our position in our area of the industry where we had that ready-made established online retail presence just to 
click go or not even to click go it was already going it just needed ramping up a bit and so for the first couple of months of lockdown yeah it, it got a lot more attention it got a lot more sales through it not masses it didn't exactly move the needle from um you know the, the house burning down to we're all right jack but it was it softened the landing of of lockdown and the on trade being shut and since that time it's kind of wound down a little bit it's back to being a very very small single digit percentage of the business um, but it is very much something that's part of our business and we can see remaining a a meaningful part of the business it compared to maybe other suppliers who rapidly had to create something from scratch in, in a matter of days or weeks we feel like that is an integral part of our business and was maybe a bit more authentic as a result, perhaps. I, I, I don't know, but it, it is very much still a part of what we do. Do you sell to any other retailers like Amazon or anything like that? No, we don't. We, we did once upon a time, going back many years now, we did sell some wine on Amazon, but it was principally for about half a dozen wines, I think, maybe two dozen wines, which we just had on a sort of bin end. We used it for some bin end stock, but we never really focused on it. We used to sell on Vivino, uh, again, going back several years. When online retail was more like 40% of what we did, then we focused a lot more on channels like that. And so we we took a step back from a lot of that as that became a less important part of the business. Um, So it's really principally through through the Red Squirrel channel and the occasional other partnership we have with other platforms, but... That's it. And of course, we sell to other online retailers and, and independent merchants, but none of the big players like, like an Amazon. Do you reckon the, like, the classic importer-distributor-retailer model is dead? I, I don't think it is. I mean, I, partly because I don't think there's anything new about what we're doing or what other people are doing. Importers supplying, whether it's the on-trade or the independent retail sector or multiples or supermarkets, they've always had multiple strings to their bows. I mean, the, the multi-channel strategy is, it's a bit of a misnomer that suppliers have suddenly had to do direct-to-consumer since the pandemic hit. I mean, if you look at last year's Harper's Wine and Spirits magazine's top 50 wholesalers, then over 50% of them had a direct-to-consumer arm whether it was explicitly through that same brand as the wholesaler or a, you know, a subsidiary or, you know, a, a secondary brand that was uh, an online shop or a physical retailer. There is nothing new about suppliers going direct to consumer. So as a model, I think it's well established. And as a model, I think it's therefore here to stay, particularly in light of what the last six months have thrown at people. But I think perhaps people who didn't have that multi-channel strategy and have been forced into it in the last six months, maybe the change where you're pointing at, that's where we will we will see real change, which is it becomes more established among people who didn't think it was part of their business model, but kind of are forced to. So is that the biggest change you think this year? Because we were talking just before so we started recording that you think this year, as much as anything, is kind of a catalyst for sort of bringing people up to date or making changes that were going to happen anyway. Is, is that a fair assessment, do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think it is. I think it is. If you step outside the the wine industry for a minute, I mean, just look at city centre offices, which are now largely empty. There was already a trend away from sitting in the office for 
how many hours a day, five days a week commuting for an hour there and back from somewhere where you could live more cheaply than the city centre, etc. That was already a trend in motion. What's been painful, I think, for a lot of people, whether it's a positive or a, or a negative adaptation in the last six months, is that things that they were kind of expecting to have to manage over the next 10 years, they've had to manage over a space of maybe more like 10 weeks. And that's what I think has discombobulated people somewhat and is, and is what may, has made it such a, a shock to the system. But then again, I don't think there's an awful lot that wouldn't have happened anyway, um, whether it's more direct consumer from suppliers or um, adaptations in the in the off trade and, and the on trade to, you know, to, to, to conform to what they have to now around um, around the pandemic. I mean, I think that all these things were, were already happening. Not, I mean, not all of them necessarily. But it, it sounds, I, I, make, I make it sound like I'm sort of Nostradamus and that this, oh, this is, this is all going to happen. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that. I mean, a lot of this stuff was probably not foreseen by a lot of people because they didn't have to. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the job of a, um, a restaurant in London, in city centre, to know that office space was going to be reduced or that people were going to be working from home more in 2035. It's just, it's just not on your radar. I mean, it's maybe on the radar for super forecasters or, you know, people in, in investing in commercial office space and, and things like that, public transport planners, etc. You may be, but not someone running a restaurant or a pub in the city of London or central Manchester or wherever. So uh, there's, it, it, I risk, I realise, saying, oh, well, this was all happening anyway. But at the same time, I've got to remember it was happening, but it's not like everyone who's been affected by it had to worry about it. So that's that's the real sadness, which is it's caught a lot of people unawares and completely through no fault of their own. Are consolidations and mergers a good thing or a bad thing for the wine industry? Are you good uh, well, or are you evil? <laughs> well, I, I hope we're not evil, whether we're so good or not. Claim. <laughs> whether we're good or not people can make their own judgment i mean i you can look at this a number of ways i mean yes i believe that they are a good thing because i've just been through one and it's turned out okay and particularly in light of what we've gone through in the last six months i mean i'd have had to be foolishly overconfident to think that red squirrel on its own could have withstood the last six months better than graft has now and and vice versa for for you know the knotted vine as well. I mean, we we both went into this from different perspectives, servicing slightly different markets. But it's certainly the case that size, safety in numbers, uh, you know, matters at the moment. We we had a broad enough spread of customers to to weather the fact that the vast majority of them had to shut their doors for several weeks. Um, we had a a spread of expertise and skills in the company to to adapt and to to think on our feet and things so having that in place as an insurance policy for what we've just been through has been invaluable um whether consolidations are yeah and and, and it worked well for us you know it, it was a right thing for us we we both needed and wanted it and we've created something that's better than the sum of its parts i can see how people are worried about consolidations at the higher end because it does restrict competition. Um, it's already a highly, highly competitive marketplace out there in the wine industry. 
probably too competitive in some corners of it and and therefore consolidation consolidation is is important to to manage that and to make it a sustainable industry because highly competitive i'm sort of careful how where i go with this but i think high levels of competition are actually unsustainable because if it's if it's too competitive out there then everyone is driving each other down on price or service or whatever it is it's it's a it's a race to the bottom if it's too competitive um so there comes a point where actually i think companies do need to come together and scale and that can be at the lower end like us uh, or it can be at the higher end because at the highest end the margins are typically way for thin i mean there aren't not massive profits to be made at the volume end so you just need to keep feeding that appetite for scale at the lower end it's more of a logistical and economies of scale problem. So I, I think that a very fragmented, highly competitive price-driven industry is not healthy. And therefore, I think consolidation is ultimately beneficial, but it's very much horses for courses. And sometimes it's the, it can be seen as a threat. Sometimes it's an opportunity. I, I take more of the latter, obviously, because of where I'm sitting. Was it always on the cards? Because obviously you did the um, out-the-box stuff for a long time and you've always been quite a collaborative sort of soul. Like, was, was it always something that, that you were considering? Yeah, it was. It, I mean, if we think about it, we probably both, David and I, in conversation, unknowingly and then increasingly knowingly danced around it for a couple of years beforehand. And we had collaborated on a few things. You mentioned out-the-box. Um, they, the Knotted Vine, joined us for our Bristol and Manchester tastings in our 2018 portfolio tastings so we went on the road together effectively like that and that taught us that there was a synergy to between the two companies there was a shared philosophy uh, and we all got on so that ticked those boxes I mean I think that we always had in mind that it would be beneficial for us to take that next step to combine with another company so before necessarily David and, and the Knotted Vine was on, on the radar and that opportunity presented itself, we kind of knew that if we wanted to jump to the next level, rather than just waiting 10 years of growing organically year by year and softly, softly, we could actually skip out a bit of that by tying up with someone else, by merging with someone else. And that was in the back of my mind for, for quite a while. It just was a case of waiting for the right person to come along because you can't just piece things together um, and say, well, they have X percentage of the market and that many customers and they're making that much revenue. We have this much revenue, bang, put it together. And now we make the two combined. It, it just doesn't work like that. There has to be a shared, uh, shared goals and a shared way of doing things, um, particularly in small, you know, owner managed businesses. Have there been any downsides? Yeah, yeah, there have. Of course, I have. Um, I'm not going to tell you though. <laughs> no, they, 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 they have. They have. I mean, in any in any consolidation like that, you you want to strive for efficiency. Otherwise, why do you do it? Efficiency is is one of the reasons why you do something like this, and that means that on both sides, you know, we had to say goodbye to certain wines, um, certain producers, which didn't fit in the new portfolio whether just because it got too big or because we had two of exactly the same kind of producer doing the same thing so eventually you have to choose uh, and that that's sad in, in some occasions um 
customer wise very little i mean there's probably been a handful of people in the last 12 months who decided that actually they preferred one or the other and they don't like the new arrangement but i could probably count that on one hand the vast majority of people realize they're now getting a better range and better service and better expertise across the board so um yeah all the other downsides i'm not going to tell you <laughs> so how do you when you let a supplier go is it like blaking up with a girlfriend or sort of something how do you approach it <laughs> depends on the supplier um how do you approach it um i think you kind of both know um so which like makes it so, i was gonna say it does <laughs> I'm, I'm really feeding i'm feeding this rather unhealthy image of of it being a sort of more than platonic relationship i mean you you do just kind of know and some some supplier relationships are a bit more transactional than others and therefore it's maybe easier to to do that but the best supplier relationships are where it's built on mutual trust understanding even friendship and i think that the stronger that connection actually probably sometimes the easier it is to make those business calls Um, sometimes it's harder but you can have a more honest conversation with people and we would be mostly fortunate that those exercises have been easy to do and satisfactory, but I'm, I'm not going to deny it's difficult to say goodbye to, to wines that you like or producers that you like. Well, about most of yours are all pretty niche, aren't they? I mean, they're always, I always find interesting stuff when I come and taste your wines, always, but they do seem boutique, is probably the best yeah. way of putting it. Um, <laughs> like, what's the biggest winery you, you deal with in terms of volume? Or Oh, um, there's a few. I mean, it, it, it'll... It'll vary. At the lower end of the range, that tends to be where you'll find the higher volume, um, but by its very nature, because the type of winemakers we tend to work with, they are maybe making fifty to 100,000 bottles a year. I mean, that's probably maybe a bit less, actually, for some of them, you know, sort of 30,000 to 80,000 bottles a year. That's kind of where our sweet spot would be, and therefore that will translate into wines that are typically maybe 15 to 25 pounds on a UK shelf. When you don't start to get down to more like, you know, twelve pounds on the shelf, then those sorts of producers, those fifty thousand bottle a year producers, they, they don't make wines like that. They can't make wines like that. They don't have the scale. So you, that's when you start having to look into the more of the two hundred fifty thousand, five hundred thousand bottles a year kind of kind of people to to service that side of the market. And I think all importers do. Um, there, there's nothing necessarily inauthentic about having horses for courses in, so do in you, a port- do you import bulk i know you do kegged wine don't you yeah we do keg wine we do keg wine um bulk in in a certain sense it's more bulk <laughs> than bottles of wine but no we don't do we don't do bulk wine um in the strictest you know understanding of, of the term bulk wine so where do you get it kegged? Not- do, you, do you import it in kegs or, or do it's imported it? in keg yeah oh, okay well it's imported in keg um Ultimately, we'd love to get to a point perhaps where you could import in bulk and then keg here. And we've looked at potential opportunities for doing that. And we're not at the scale where that's necessary, but that if we're thinking of sustainability and why kegs are important in the first place, that that's the logical next step. Uh, I mean, bulk wine is something that I think is very interesting for us to explore in the future. We're just, we're too small at the moment. Um, I'm not saying that you have to be enormous to take advantage of bulk everyone assumes that it's just for the you know five pounds on the supermarket shelf kind of wine it, it really isn't there's good wine you can get at more like the 10 pounds on a indie wine merchant shelf but we're just not quite at that scale yet 
So this segues again nicely onto another question. <laughs> what are the main considerations for someone thinking of launching a UK wine importer? <laughs> Oh, um, well, there are many. I mean, I'd, I'd say there are probably three three main ones. The most important is be humble about your ideas. I mean, I think be, be confident in your ideas and be confident in your wines and your producers and your ability to, uh, to, to sell those wines, sell those producers' stories. But if you come into the wine industry, particularly, I think this is a particular failing, perhaps, of people who've come into it from my angle which is a, you know, a non-wine industry background and turning to wine industry later in life, not really later in life when I was 26. Um, and <laughs> yeah, careful, Nick, because we met a while ago, so let's not. <laughs> you, you think, you think that you've got the next credit, you think you've seen a gap in the market and that no one's doing this. I, I see this so often that no one was offering wines from these small producers. And I thought there was a gap. If you think there's a gap in the market, there probably isn't. The likelihood is someone's already done it or doing it. And doing it quite well your opportunity is just to tell that story that bit better and if insofar as maybe red squirrel in the past and graft is doing now has done things better than other people and has risen higher in some ways then it's only insofar as we were telling that story better so how do you tell but, stories because most like it, most people just bang on about soil for 20 minutes and then presume people want to buy their wines which obviously isn't the case yeah well okay well, well num number one if you're selling to if you're selling to the general public don't bang about so on about soil for 20 minutes <laughs> um i think well take take our example so our strap line was about native and alternative grape varieties and red squirrel was, em was emblematic of that i mean everyone in this country gets what a red squirrel is versus a great gray squirrel i think pretty much everyone does and therefore, people knew that what we were doing was something that was a bit niche. It was uh, that native element, that rare element. It wasn't hard to get that across. Now, we're not the first people who came along trying to focus on native and specialist and rare grape varieties. I mean, look at massive importers, like some like Le Carte de Perenne have been doing that for years, but not necessarily telling it through the same story. They were talking about, well, we're working with people in La France Profonde, you know, down in the hidden darkest corners of Fronton selling Negret. And that was, that was the romance in and of itself. We were just saying, well, this is cool because of Negret and it's a rare and native grape variety and, and things like that. that so we, we turned the story maybe on its head for very much a consumer, a general consumer audience uh, rather than a trade audience, which, which is why when we did the merger, Red Squirrel stayed as that consumer-facing brand and didn't continue as the trade-facing brand. It was very consumer-oriented. And it was taking something that people could relate to, the Red Squirrel, and people liked, but applying it to wine. And uh, so we weren't reinventing the wheel. We were just telling the same story, maybe sometimes in a slightly better way. And, uh, and that's what I hope that people come into come into wine or setting up their wine business where they've been in it for ages and they realize that actually you know, everyone's got good wine and and everyone's telling good stories and the world's awash with great wine so finding another quirky producer from wherever it is to import to uk it's not actually that hard to do that 
the difficult job is then finding a market for it. And, and that's where I'd say that the second really important thing after being you know, humble about your ideas and realizing that you're not actually necessarily doing something, anything particularly new is know who your market is. I think a mistake that a lot of small one man bands or hopefully soon to be, you know, or one woman bands soon to, soon to be bigger teams and growing, whatever, what they, what they will, a lot of them make the mistake is that they don't necessarily know who they're selling to. Some do, and they're really successful at it, but selling to a restaurant, selling to a wine shop, selling to the general public, um, selling to corporate clients, hotels, wine bars, these are all very different customers. And I think sometimes people think, well, I'll just bring in a few pallets of this really cool wine from um, Abruzzo and I'll sell it to that restaurant down the road, I'll sell it to a pub, etc." They're all very different customers. You need different skill sets. You need maybe different staff, different people. You need maybe different wines. You need different pricing structures. You need different logistics arrangements. And I mean, Red Squirrel was kind of 50-50 selling to the on-trade and the off-trade. I'm not saying that we got anywhere near to cracking either of those. One of the reasons why we merged with the Knotted Vine was because David Knott was, is exceptionally good at selling to restaurants in a way that we weren't and probably never would be. So, and in the same breath, they weren't particularly astute at selling to the independent trade. They require very different skill sets. And I think therefore going into the market, knowing who your customers are is really, really important. So was that part of your story then? Like, so was the story a business decision or did you just love the story and try and make a business around it in terms of autochthonous varieties and uh, natural wines and garden pits. I, I, I love you know, Bob, Bob. I love that you call it autochthonous varieties. It's such a, a such a beautiful word that the Europeans use, and we don't use very much English. Well, no, I, I like it because it sounds very scientific. I mean, sometimes people people talk about native. Well, we talk about native uh, and indigenous. Well, did you love the wines and then try and make a business around it, or did you notice a gap in the market and then say, "I'm going to do this"? I. Well, at risk of contradicting what I just said, yeah, I noticed a gap in the market for... <laughs> this was eight years for, ago, though. <laughs> yeah. No, but even then, even then, we were, we, were at the, we were at the outset of more interest in, in native and alternative varieties. We were at that, it, one of the early players, but we weren't the first doing it. I mean, what I just noticed was a lack of understanding and appreciation for them that could be enhanced uh, that could be a story that could be told better so no i didn't go into it necessarily loving the wines full stop and then building a business around that i, I loved wine and i loved wines of particular regions and it was one region that really gave me that idea and that's liguria we, we started with two ligurian producers making wine from native grapes which no one had ever heard of and you couldn't get in the uk so that that typified what we wanted to do perfectly it all stemmed from there. That, so it was, it was that region, those grapes, things like Pegato and Rosese, that, that gave me the idea to focus the business around that. The red squirrel idea came after several months of just spitballing with friends and, and family and finding the right name. It was originally going to be called guinea pig because oh, yes, yes. yeah, guinea pig was the idea that everyone knows what a guinea pig is and you would be a guinea pig. The customer is the guinea pig. The customer would be a guinea pig for these wines that they never heard of. The problem then was that people said, ah, oh, yeah, but guinea pigs are things that people eat on sticks in Peru and um, prod in laboratories, and therefore it's not great. So that died a death, but Red Squirrel 
persisted. Sorry, and you, there was a third uh, thing that people should be aware of when launching a UK wine importer. We haven't got yeah. to yet, I think. Yeah, understand that very quickly, um, if you're any good at what you're doing, you're no longer running a wine company, you're running a logistics company. And that's essential. If you don't get your logistics right, then you might as well give up. So how um, do you do logistics? Have you got a bonded warehouse? Or do you go through one of yep. the other providers? Yeah, yep. we have a bonded warehouse. We started out, both ourselves and um, Minotted Vine started out at a bonded warehouse called EHD down in mm -hmm. Sunbury, who were great. Um, I mean, there are really two main options i think for a lot of people in the london area there's ehd down in southwest um middlesex area and then there's obviously london city bond over in tilbury docks which seems to be you know what most people use it's where we are now but for us probably actually the smaller setup of ehd helped us from the outset because we could very quickly um become quite an important presence there and we got a lot of help early on from quite a hands-on team in helping us grow and being a real partner. So uh, I would, yeah, for anyone small starting out, I really recommend looking at them. I think that as we grew, the, the, the network of warehouses that LCB had around the country was, was really important for us as a, as a national distributor, because we do distribute in every region of the country. Uh, and so that made sense for us when, we created graft to, um, to, to consolidate everything there at, at a slightly bigger, bigger provider in that sense. Um, the other benefit of the bonded warehouse is they do everything for you. I mean, one of the biggest complications of being a wine importer is all the paperwork and bringing wine in from different parts of the world, particularly, um, from the 1st of January paperwork around that, <laughs> but having someone who have an entire department, you know, dedicated to doing that rather than you, is essential you pay so a premium for that, but you you should make that back in the time you can then spend out on the road selling your wine so having a really good logistics setup i think is is essential so where are the easiest places to import from and hardest places brexit aside i mean up until now <laughs> are there anywhere that's particularly challenging from a logistical point of view i mean dealing yeah. with small producers logistically must be tough and expensive if you're only doing a few cases at a time it can i mean i'd say that you can't only do a few cases at a time so when you when you start out looking for new producers you have to think how am i going to ship a pallet now there are freight forwarders that can consolidate you know half a pallet quarter a pallet and you'll pay a premium for that but you can still move it i just don't think that the economies of scale are, are worth it until you get to a sort of a pallet but in terms of places to get wine from i mean they're they're challenging for different reasons maybe i think the first thing before we start talking about the logistics mm -hmm. i don't think you can be a credible wine importer in the uk today if you don't travel to the regions if you don't travel to the vineyards you you, you know, have to do it every year you know i don't have to go to Australia every single year or Italy every single year, but you're, so, you're, you're a company where people travel regularly to source and understand the vineyards and, and see them with their own two eyes, that that adds a credibility to, to a wine importer. I, I don't think you can just sit in an office in the UK and have samples sent to you or go to the occasional trade fair, but having that understanding of the market. So that naturally means the places that are easier to get to are easier to import from. So that's why there are more French, Italian, Spanish, German 
Portuguese specialists because they're right on our doorstep uh, and you can devote more time to them. I think that being said, it's about how quickly and how efficiently you can get stock from a certain destination or a certain origin. And there are some places that are harder than others. Some are closer to home, like Turkey. Turkey is somewhere that's just particularly expensive to get wine from. I think for simple reason that it's not a particularly common common route for a lot of the major freight forwarders. Whereas somewhere like South Africa or Argentina, which are much further away, is significantly cheaper because it's just economies of scale. Um, for other reasons, somewhere like Canada, British Columbia, we, we've imported wine from British Columbia for about last four or five years. And it has to get from Western side of Canada somehow to the UK, either by boat or by road or all manner of things. And we've every option you can think of about getting wine from British Columbia, we tried it. And there are all various iterations on being expensive. So there are different logistical challenges from one side of the country to the other, or one side of the world to the other. And you just have to manage them. If you want the wines, you have to find the best way to manage them. Do you use the same freight forwarder for everyone? No, we don't, because some people are just better in different markets. So in terms of traveling, obviously that's not terribly green. How important are environmental considerations, uh, either for marketing or just for for an ethical point of view for for a wine business? Yeah, it's a... Good point. Oh, oh my answer. Um, you're, you had me bang to rights. I mean, it's a problem we face in the wine trade that we do want diversity. We do want choice. And the UK is it's the best shop window for wine in the world. We have probably have more choice of wine here than anywhere else. And that does come with costs. Um, if you take my example there, to be a credible wine importer, you have to travel to source. Yes, but I would say it can still be done sustainably. Um, I mean, we're not traveling constantly. Uh, we're hopefully we're traveling quite efficiently, you know, in times when we are allowed to travel. And that side of it, I think, is just it just has to be done in order to do that job properly. I, re- I really do think that. Um, that being said, ecological considerations are, I, I think, are paramount. We're, we're in the food and drink industry and food and drink is indelibly tied up in ecological concerns on behalf of the consumer or the people working in it um are there choices you make with your suppliers because obviously you do loads of organic and natural and all the other stuff or is, or is that just part of parcel of of their ethos and where else not assuming that organic is necessarily any more environmentally friendly but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well, it is. yeah well I, I always get told the story of um winemaker i know in portugal who talks about his his neighbour who is who has an organic vineyard and he spends more time in the vineyard in his tractor pumping out fossil fuels. Um, but yeah, any copper. <laughs> exactly. So well, I don't know. For, for reasons like that, we've never been dogmatic. N- neither I, you know, with Red Squirrel before or, or David with Knotted Vine before or now versus Graph. We've never been dogmatic about organic and and biodynamic and and natural winemaking things our preference for wines just steers us down that kind of direction but we realize that ticking boxes isn't going to save the world and it's more about approaching each and every winemaker or producer on their merits and in taking into account everything that they do rather than just being able to say you know they have a particular sticker on on the back label and so therefore, for the most part, people we work with are farming organically. 
they're farming sustainably and those are the sort of wines we we head towards but we've never been dogmatic about it i do think that the winemakers kind of select themselves therefore for an importer like us um we're lucky to work with people who share those i think similarly pragmatic values as well that being said they're vineyards are they are the canary in the mine as a lot of people say for you know climate change or you know similar crops uh, and we see that all the time whether it's in europe or in you know hotter areas of the new world harvests are changing you know ripeness levels grapes are changing the sort of grapes you can grow are changing and i think we have an example to set there for us as a wine industry to take environmental considerations i think i just think take more seriously as well also, I think because customers expect it, um, they, they really do expect it. There's, it's it's easy in some ways to to stand out as well nowadays. If you if you do have those green credentials, I mean they have to be authentic. You can't just shout from the rafters and say we're we're looking after environment, and not actually have something to back that up. Which is kind of where I think look at the easy wins. We mentioned key kegs earlier. Uh, I, I don't seriously believe that there is any, I don't think you can be a serious wine importer with serious ec- environmental credentials if you are not examining packaging formats. I really don't. And it, it, or anything? Yeah, maybe can. It doesn't have to be key kegs. I'm not saying that we're necessarily, um, you know, green angels here, but that is solving a problem, which is that the traditional 75 centiliter glass wine bottle is a very unenvironmentally friendly way to move wine around the world. And whether it's bulk wine or whether it's, you know, wine on tap through key kegs or canned wine, whatever way you look at it, I think we have to be re-examining packaging. Uh, that's a really, really big first step uh, that, that wine importers can, can take. And I think if they're not doing that, then they might be you know, doing other things. They might be proclaiming other environmental credentials, but... I don't think that we can really say we're making progress until we start examining packaging. So I'm conscious of time, partly yours, and also I've got to edit this and I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm going to try and keep it a little bit, a little bit shorter. Um, so the final question, what does the future hold and what should it? Well, I tell you what holds for us, which is every single day, um, just trying to be better at what we do for our producers and our customers. Um, the reason why that we came together as Graft last year and created what we have now is because we just believe that as our individual entities, it would it would take us a very long time to reach a level where we could provide the level of customer service we wanted and also repay faith in producers and sell the sort of wine that we that producers wanted to sell. So for our point of view, it is to continue being better on those two counts. Uh, and I think that we have a sustainable and, and a proven business model to do that. And so I'm tentatively confident for the future um, as much as I can be in this environment, but um, I'm touching various items of <laughs> wooden shelving and tables and chairs here right now saying that, but uh, I, I do, I'm quite confident for the future in that sense. What's as an industry, <laughs> Well, we import a lot of wine from the new world. So (laughs) no, our Brexit plan is very simple. We're just going to have to carry more stock for the first few months of 2021 than we ordinarily would have done, you know, going into a new year and continue doing the the two things I said, which is just 
be better at what we do. And I think that as people are consolidating their supply base, you have to stand out and you stand out by making people's lives easier, solving problems. Um, and that maybe goes to the heart, you know, what we were talking about earlier about what makes a good wine importer or what you should think about saying of a wine importer. You, you're there ultimately to solve people's problems. There's a lot of good wine out there. Um, your wine is great. The next wine importer's wine is great. But who is better at solving your customers' problems, particularly in this day and age? And I think that's what we're really, really focusing on and, and trying to, to, to do better, whether that's putting more information in people's hands through digital resources, through our smartphone app, whether it's a better logistics service, just everything needs to make their lives easier um, rather than harder. So from our perspective, that's what we want to do. I mean, as an industry, I think we all just need to be slightly better at making money. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, I really do. And maybe so that's... Do that? I mean, you can't just be through prices. So look, how do we make more money? Oh, gosh, if I had, if I had the answer to that question. I, you, you, beca- you get as efficient as you can. That's number one. I think there's a lot of inefficiencies in supply chains and in the way we do business that we're constantly trying to to do to be better at um so that there is that there is undoubtedly effect of competition in our very fragmented market in the uk very fragmented and very competitive which makes it hard to increase margins and i think you can only increase margins on what is effectively a commoditized product now i mean it really is yes there are star producers and some great wines which people are willing to spend spend good money on you know whether it's from certain regions but there is so much good wine out there and very good wine importers selling them that the way that you can maintain your prices and not be constantly battered down is just by providing a better service so get your house in order with you know efficiencies economies of scale whatever it is your your back of office your wine portfolio make sure you've got the best possible wines you have but ultimately you can only sustainably charge the the amount that those wines deserve to be charged if you're providing a level of service that customers are you know happy to have to pay money for um so i think it all comes down to that it's just being better at providing that service and solving people's problems um, there's there's probably a little bit too much of a complacency that we're just here to connect lovely people running restaurants with lovely people making wine and we're that person in between i think we have we can and we should and the best people in this industry are so much more than that they're people who solve problems so that's what yeah i've gone back to you know saying what future is for us but that's really what we aspire to be um does that answer it am i am i, I getting so. do i get do i get a gold star or, you or get in a gold bro- star definitely oh, no i think you. that's um that's but crystal 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 balls for what the rest of the future holds. I, uh, honestly, I don't know. I, I do these things every every year. You know, you get asked what, what's going to happen in twenty twenty, and in fact, I, I did was wrong about that last year though. Like, yeah, the- <laughs> they were. They, were. I, they, they probably were. But then who yeah, who knows what twenty 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 one will be more of the same. It really will. We, let's not forget we get a little bit hung up over all the change that we're going through and how stressful that is and the anxiety around the industry that we work in and friends and colleagues that we we hold dear going through the ring and particularly in the hospitality trade at the moment but let's not forget that what we do next year will largely be the same as what we did this year and what we did the year before we just have to be constantly better at doing it and 
therefore i don't think the wine industry is massively going to change much because it never really has you know that's one of the beauties of it also one of the curses <laughs> but it never really has changed that much there, there will continue to be innovations and developments but it, it, it continues to move along at a fairly slow and quite predictable pace um and i think that's what will continue in, in 2021 it's just there's going to be a smaller pie for a while to fight over but we've been here before we've we've been through recessions before you know we've we've been through extended recessions before and we've come out the other side and we're still a great trade so i think people are still going to want to drink eh? people are still going to want to drink yeah they, they are and it, i think there's if there's any upside in prevailing trends whether it's pandemic induced or not it's that people are increasingly wanting to drink a little bit less and a little bit better and they are concerned about those environmental credentials as well and they want things to be authentic i mean that they want authenticity in everything that they do and you know, i don't want to get all sort of existentialist or anything but i think authenticity is at the heart of what makes you know a good a wine a good winemaker a good wine and a good wine importer and if you can tell that story then you're on to something cool well listen i'm conscious it's time so thank you so much for um for some brilliant answers there actually nick that was um, that was awesome thank you very much indeed so anyone listening who hasn't checked out craft wines if you think you know about wine go and look at their website you realize you don't and i guarantee you'll find something interesting there Thank you very much, Bob. It's, it's it's an absolute pleasure to um to to break your uh to break your duck, as they say, for for yeah. the, the big the big van theory, and I'm sure that it will continue to continue to be good fun. Yeah, cool. Well, hopefully we'll get you back. I look forward to following it. Yeah, I'll come back whenever you like. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Nick. Cheers, Bob. Cheers. Bye.